I miss being with you at this, and I'm glad that God has given us the chance to be together tonight. So we are going to pick up some things tonight, and we're going to pick up a couple of things for next week's sermon tonight, because next Sunday night's 5 at 5 is, uh, let's just say, colorful, all right? You'll want to be here next Sunday morning. We're going to talk about who the beast is. Yeah, that's what I said. So help pass the word that we're going to talk about that next Sunday morning, and you'll want to be here for that conversation. Then Sunday night, we'll follow up on it with some other things that are related to Revelation 13. These two chapters, 13 and, uh, 12 and 13, are two of the chapters that when questions come to me about Revelation, it is almost always about these two chapters. And the reason for that is there's a lot of language that is the fancy term, hapoxlegomena. Write that down, you can use it in Scrabble. It's a Latin phrase. It means words that we only find once in the New Testament. You know, I can just hear my grandmother saying, well, if that's what it means, why didn't you say that in the first place, Darren? A point well made. But it's a phrase that we use to indicate that this is unusual language. They're all over the place in these two chapters. Things that we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I've never seen John use that word before. Where did that come from? So here's a bonus five at five question before we get into what's here. What, why does John's language in Revelation differ so sharply from the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Factor this in. John's vision, and I would say four visions of Revelation, are reflective of a supernatural experience one that he has no frame of reference for describing in the same language that he did the gospel or the three letters. It is a vastly different experience that John is experiencing to give you what he's provided for us. The opportunity God has given him to understand this reflects a very different understanding than what he knew before. Furthermore, by the time he writes Revelation, He's an aged man, at least in his late 80s. He is a man who has experienced a lot of life and learned quite a a few things. Praise the Lord that we have revelation as it stands, even if there are things that only appear once. Revelation 12 and 13, we see them all the time. We'll point out a couple of them. Let us take out our Bible and turn to Revelation 12. We'll read the same passage that we read this morning as a starting point for our conversation. Starting in verse 7, this is what the Bible says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you, 
in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle. She might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let us pray as we begin. We, Lord Jesus, are better for having read your word together again. Now we pray that you would illumine not only our minds, but our hearts as well. And this day, Lord, you would use for your glory in each of our lives that we would remember where we are is not where we always will be. You're drawing it all to a close. And so, Jesus, would you use this time to remind us of that, to strengthen our hope and remind us, Jesus, you're on your way and that Satan's time is short. We rejoice in that tonight, Lord Jesus. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, my friends, let's start with this one. Who is the woman in Revelation 12? We saw her last week and we talked about her again just a moment ago. In some of your study Bibles, it sort of cheats and gives you her identity right there at the heading. Right above the beginning of chapter 12, it says, The woman, Israel. Well, now, that is in all likelihood exactly who she is. However, I wanted to take a moment, since we have the time, to offer you two other options worthy of your consideration. I know that some of us were brought up in the Catholic tradition, and therefore you might have, if that's you, a study Bible at home that is more Catholic than the ones that I use. The Catholic view is that this woman in Revelation 12 is Mary. This is Mary. After all, she gives birth to Jesus. Wouldn't it make sense? But Mary never flees to the wilderness. So perhaps we better think again. She never flees to the wilderness and is, to the best of our knowledge, never given wings to be lifted up. The opportunity we have to understand this as Mary, then, is one that we would do well to set aside and say, no, probably not Mary. Here's a third option, though, and this is the other one that I found in several commentaries and that I decided and thus presented to you over the last two weeks, something very different than that. A third option is that the woman represents the church. The New Testament frequently refers to the church as a lady. And if you have been with me since I got here, then you may remember a few years ago we did a, a series out of the letters of John that we entitled Letters to a Lady, Letters to the Church. However, 
The most frequent reference to the church is the bride of Christ. One cannot be simultaneously both the mother to the Savior and the bride of the Savior at the same time. That might make for some unusual family ties. The church, therefore, did not give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. Thus, we're back where we started. The woman is Israel. That's what we prefer because it seems to make the most sense. Now, this is where my friends who are dispensationalists would get excited. So, Darren, you're saying then that there's a special place in eternity forward for the nation, physical, geopolitical nation of Israel. I'm still not sure about that. But I know this. In Revelation 12, the woman who is the nation of Israel, in my understanding, is protected by God and delivered by his hand. Praise the Lord for that. Whether that means the geopolitical nation of Israel gets the same treatment or not really isn't relevant for me. Perhaps it's a statement not just about the geopolitical nation, but about the people, the nation of Israel, wherever they might be scattered. This, my friends, is a point where we can rejoice because this woman, used by God, protected by God, sheltered by God, is one that he used to accomplish his purposes. You know, it doesn't say that the woman is perfect. And aren't you glad it doesn't? I am. It doesn't say that she got it all together she had it in the right places. It just says that she was the one that God chose and that God protected. Praise the Lord for that. Let us move on to the second question for tonight. Who are the dragon and what about the one-third of the stars in Revelation 12? Well, the red dragon is definitely Satan himself. Here's the ancillary question. Will he be revealed to incarnate another person? Revelation doesn't say, but that most certainly hasn't stopped people from speculating. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've ever heard such and such person is Satan. I won't ask you to raise your hand if you've said such and such person is Satan. We don't know that, but we can say with conclusiveness, the red dragon is Satan himself. Likewise for the serpent. Now, when I, I was talking with someone about this passage, verse 9 of Revelation 12 was upsetting because it talks about the dragon and then it says the ancient serpent. Well, is that the same? Yes. Don't allow yourself to be deceived. They are indeed the same. It's possible the dragon will not be identified as, Christ, as Satan like the Antichrist until his reign of terror really does take hold. We won't know that's the red dragon when they step to the forefront. Now, in my lifetime, I've been told that Satan is incarnate in several political leaders. So have you. Perhaps you have one in mind right now. I caution you, though, 
Because we don't know. Scripture does not identify for us how the red dragon will surface, where he will come from, or by what means he'll advance to the stage. Likewise, we'll come back to this later, we understand the same deficiencies for the Antichrist. We don't know by what means they will arrive. Will they be elected, appointed, or a dictator? Will they rise to power through normal sources or be appointed with it from other sources? We don't know that. So anything that we might add to that conversation is exactly that, speculation. It means that we are hitting and hoping that we're right. I caution you against that, friends, only because it's easy to miss. It's easy to miss. Go back with me to the late 1930s and early 1940s. Every well-intentioned interpreter of Revelation speculates that Adolf Hitler is the Antichrist. Well, if there's ever been anyone, at least in the 20th century, who most closely resembled what we might expect from the Antichrist, it's him. And yet, as we well know, it's been over 70 years and Hitler is still dead. We need not fear him any further. I want you to resonate with the fact that we can identify some things in Scripture, though, and that's why I wanted to put this question in. Where Revelation is clear, we can join John in that. The red dragon is Satan himself. Likewise, for the one-third of the stars, we talked about this last week, but let's rehearse it one more time. It's likely symbolic. Now, when I say likely, understand that's not conclusive. It's just probable. It's likely that this is symbolic of the angels falling from heaven. These are swept up in the wrath of Satan and his re revolt. That's what we see in verses 7 through 9, right there at the beginning. Oh, friends, this is a sad reflection, this war in heaven. And it's something that should grieve us. At the same time, it's a recognition that even angels can be deceived, at least in that moment. They sold themselves the wrong direction, and when they did, it cost them their eternity. Let's not make the same mistake. Let's move on to our third question to, of the night. What are these two wings of the great eagle given to the woman in Revelation 12, verse 4? While we can't say for sure, imagine with me the times that you've seen pictures of eagles soaring. I remember when we were on a trip we saw way off in the distance a grand and majestic bald eagle flying. And I was struck by two things. One, how big his wingspan was. Man, it seemed like forever from one end to the other. And two, how effortless his flight seemed. He just seemed to be riding on an unseen quilt like he was being held aloft by some means that were invisible. While we may not be able to say conclusively 
what are these two wings, I want to present to you an argument that suggests something definitive, and we'll arrive at that at the end. In Exodus 19, verse 4, just as they are leaving the nation of Egypt and before they arrive in the promised land, God says to the Israelites, I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 11, God says, Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them. He carried them on his pinions. These aren't the only two times that we find eagles described. Isaiah 40 is the most famous of those. It's not uncommon for us to find eagles in the Old Testament. Likewise, it's not uncommon that we should expect to find them in the new. And yet we don't. Not many anyway. When we find them here, we're reminded that these are rare instances when we get a picture of God's character. These two wings then seems likely that they are symbolic. Doesn't mean they can't be literal as well. But they're symbolic of the supernatural help that only God can provide. Just like he carried them on eagles' wings in Exodus 19, and just like he carried them on his pinions in Deuteronomy 32, his miraculous authority will carry them again. Oh, friends, this is such good news. And it's why I wanted to include this question Far too often, we limit God by what we understand and we restrict him to our understanding of how he can do it. So we say, well, God, I know you can deliver me, so here's how you'll do it. You'll do it. And so we bring to God our solution and we say, God, here's how I want you to accomplish it. You can use these means and then I'll know it's you. Let me just caution you against that, friends. It is the height of arrogance to presume that I can tell God how he will deliver me. How about this one instead? By whatever means you choose, Lord Jesus, I trust that you will deliver me. By whatever means you choose, Lord, I put myself into your care and I rest there. Not merely because I have to, although that's true too, but because I choose to, knowing that that's where my salvation really is found. When we do that, then we release ourselves to the care of the one who has the great wings of the eagle to give in the first place. There's an unspoken authority in God right there that the wings of the eagles are his to give. Aha! Now we're getting down to something. You can't give what you do not possess. And so when God's giving these, it means he has the sovereignty and the wisdom to accomplish that very thing. When we see the wings given to this angel, to this woman, we're also not told where he takes her to protect her. Does it really matter as long as it's in God's presence? I've read some really high-minded ideals about where God delivers her to. Don't buy into that nonsense. It's not unimportant that God would deliver her, but it isn't important how 
when God is the one who's doing the delivering and he's the one who will know. I, I call to your attention the things related to that because I want you to recognize there's a great many things we don't know that we sure would like to. So when we face those moments, what do we do? Demand an answer from God before we proceed? That's what Gideon did, and it worked out okay for him. But perhaps since the Holy Spirit indwells us, and it didn't Gideon, at least not like it does for us, maybe the wiser thing to do is to say, Jesus, I'm listening. Or to borrow from our friend Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. I'm resting in who you are. Let us move on to the fourth question. This is borrowing from next week. Is the beast of Revelation 13, 1-10 an empire or an individual? This is the question that I get most frequently about Revelation 13. The real unspoken piece is when people present this to me is, who is the beast? The question is one that does not have an answer, so it's speculative for us to take it up at all. But perhaps we can offer some clarity based on what Scripture does say. One of the things that Scripture does frequently is present things that help us get clues as to whether this is an empire or an individual. The two aren't necessarily exclusive. Why can't it be both? There are times when a single leader represents an entire empire. Consider Nebuchadnezzar and his reign over Babylon. For most, to refer to Nebuchadnezzar was equivalent to referring to Babylon as a whole. Alternatively, Revelation 13, 1-10 is consistent with a singular pronoun. He, him, first person singular pronouns for both the first and the second beasts. It seems, therefore, most logical to regard them both as individuals, not empires. So when we come upon this, that doesn't mean that the individual can't lead an empire. In other words, like Nebuchadnezzar led Babylon, if the beast is an individual, that doesn't mean he doesn't have a cadre with him. But it does mean that I need not grow weary trying to figure out whether it's an empire or an individual. Rather, I can stand back and say, Lord, whoever it is, you know. So I'm going to trust that to you. Now let us conclude our five questions with this one. Is the beast past or future? The answer to this question presumes your overarching interpretive method for Revelation. This goes way back to the early part of this year when we talked about four primary methods for understanding Revelation. Really, it's only the preterists, those who believe Revelation has already been fulfilled, who struggled with this question they regard the beast as the Roman emperor Nero. They take great pains to 
point that out and have great and expansive arguments about how he is, in a numeric fashion, equivalent to the 666 that is his name listed later in Revelation 13. We'll circle back to that later. But for now, let us say this. It all depends on how you understand Revelation as to your answer to this. Are the preterists necessarily right? No, but they, neither are they necessarily wrong. It seems unlikely, though, that if this were Nero, if the beast were Nero, that there would be nobody among the early historians who would have noted that. Let's pick on just three. Irenaeus, Victorinus, Prismasius. None of them took the position that our friend Nero was the beast. Thus, we might do well to let that go. Furthermore, Nero was not engaged in many of the things that are associated with the beast in Revelation 13. His reign, as terrifying as it was, seven years in total, was terrifying for Christianity, but it did not bring an apocalyptic end to the cosmos or even the age. There was a Roman emperor right behind him, and another one behind him, and another one behind him. Each of them almost as wicked as Nero had been himself. So if Nero qualifies to be the beast, then why not one of them? It seems, therefore, to better and more accurately portray it, to adopt the historic position of the church, the beast is still yet future. The key question with that, when the beast does arrive at some point in the future, will we recognize him for who he is? Well, if we take Revelation 13 seriously, the answer is no. We will not. Not until such a time as it becomes clear when he reveals himself and his true character. Oh, there will be signs, but there have been signs before, haven't there? We've been deceived before. This is why I caution you, friends. There's a story about a, an expert being defined as someone with a briefcase more than 50 miles from home. That may very well be true. And it's especially true if they're talking about the book of Revelation. I caution you against definitive interpretations. I caution you against making absolute certain. If anybody says, this is definitely it, I've understood every part of it, run for the ever-loving hills. Because chances are good, no. Either they've been deceived or they've deceived themselves. Instead, I want you to go back to Revelation 12. Uh, let's see if I can spot it right quick. Let's, uh, verse 11. They've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. They did not conquer him with academic knowledge. They did not conquer him with a more complete commentary. They did not conquer him with a chart on the wall. They did not conquer him with political authority. They did not conquer him with a written governing document. 
They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, the word of the testimony, and faithfulness to Christ. That's it. So what is it that Jesus asks of you? Well, let's rejoice that it isn't to identify who the beast is. What he asks is you. He only wants you. And you know, sometimes when I tell people that, they get so frustrated. That's too easy, Darren. Isn't it, though? Such is the simplicity of the gospel. A child can receive it. And yet, the inexhaustible depth that a lifetime of study will not yet complete the understanding of all that it means. That's why I took you back to verse 11. I've known quite a number of people over the years who have spent considerable time, energy, and even money trying to discern and determine the identity of the beast, the Antichrist, the two witnesses, and the ancillary characters in the rest of Revelation. There's no harm in that, but my question, my question for them is, how much better would you have been if you had emphasized what Christ did make clear instead of what he didn't? This question then that I've ended with, it's a trick question in some respects. The truth is we don't know. Has the beast already come or not? It doesn't really matter. Because Christ's victory is still just as complete either way. All right, friends, it's time for Stump the Chump. Where's my friend Katie? There she is. Okay. I know you've saved up the last couple of weeks and maybe even a couple of months. Let her rip. All right, my friend Danny. So did Satan and the angels get thrown out of heaven twice? Because it seems that he was thrown out even before Adam and Eve, because he was there in the garden, he was here on earth then. Yes. And, and now you're saying in the future there's going to be a war and he's going to get thrown out again. So it seems to me like when I read this, this is a rehash of what happened in the past. So let me ask you a question in return. Uh, where does Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 meet? We don't know, do we? Revelation 12 is the second version of Isaiah 14 where Satan is thrown out of heaven. We don't know how those two overlap. Will they be one event and ancillary after that? I think the real problem we have, Danny, is a metaphysical one. Uh, one where we have two different timelines that are at work and we don't know which one we're on. Uh, we're on a linear timeline that is based on one day follows inherently the next. God isn't limited to that, and I would presume that Satan and, and that the angels and demons aren't either. So at what point do, do Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 meet? We don't know. Is this telling about a past event or dictating there is yet a future one? It's not clear. What it does say is that this war in heaven will cost a third of the angels their eternity. Is that past or future? <laughs> I'll tell you when Jesus comes back. <laughs> Questions? 
Oh, you guys are disappointing me. I thought you'd have, uh, have some. Oh, sorry, Keith. I'll see you now. Uh, Daniel 10 tells us that that was a chronological, you know, as Daniel had the vision, then 21 days he yes. receives the uh, message, and, and of course, uh, Michael. So there is a timeline in that, in the war in uh, Persia. So could not this whole Revelation 12 uh, take place at Christmas? And if it's at Christmas, on the uh, first Christmas, why don't we have a Christmas dragon? as part of the uh, nativity scene. Oh, man. I like that question, Keith. I, 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 if I had a hat on, I would take it off. Uh, I think maybe we need to adopt one. That's not, just to defeat him. Take him off the tree and throw him down and stomp him at the end. That, no, I don't... My 11-year-old boy would agree with that. <laughs> My 11-year-old would probably get on board with it, too. I, I don't know that I can, can speak to that. One of the big challenges we have when, really with Daniel 9, 10, and 11, the most apocalyptic section of Daniel, uh, is really what precedes them. And at the end of Daniel 8, he says, I didn't understand the visions that I had and was greatly troubled by that. So does that precede? And now in 9, 10, and 11, it's all clear for him? Or is that strictly ancillary, looking back on the visions he's already had? Yeah, I don't know. So uh, your question is a valid one, especially the Christmas dragon question. Uh, but I, I don't know that we have uh, anything more than speculation we can offer. So is it possible that it is both a past and yet future event? Yes, but it seems unlikely. Perhaps it's, it's looking back at a time and yet on a different timeline than ours. All right, somebody else. Would you speak to the offspring of the woman in verse 17? Oh, sure, sure, sure. The offspring of the woman in verse 17, as I understand it, speaks to everybody that has come after her. In other words, we might interpret it based on how the diaspora has been watered down in so many other places. I think we could even include ourselves there. In other words, everybody. It's not limited to just those who are Jewish. It's my father-in-law trying to trap me down here. You saw that, didn't you? No, I'm teasing, I'm teasing. Anybody else? So uh, I wanted to, as we conclude tonight, uh, take just a moment uh, to uh, talk about my friend Shumi. All right? Uh, this morning, uh, in both of our services, you saw my friend Shumi take the lead on every praise. Now, some of you came up to me after the service and said, who is that fantastically gifted singer who led? Uh, Shumi is up in the balcony, and he's wishing I wouldn't talk about him, uh, but I'm going to. Uh, Shumi Odorale uh, is our associate media pastor. At least that's what we hired him for. Uh, I think we got a smoking deal, friends. Uh, so, yes, indeed. Uh, you will be blessed by the talents of Shumi going forward. The reason I bring him up is not just because of this morning, but because I want to invite you to something a week from Friday on October, October 
August the 19th. We're not that far into the year, although it'll be here next week. Anybody with that? So uh, August the 19th, we are hosting in our auditorium an evening we're calling the Night of Praise. There will be some preaching, uh, but it will be largely centered on worship. I'm really excited about it. Uh, Many of you know Albert Hall. Uh, Albert is a part of the leadership group. Jake Sanchez, some of you know Jake. Uh, He's been a part of that. And our own Shumi Odorale. Uh, Shumi is going to be a part of the leadership of that. It is going to be a fantastic night of gathering with believers from across the community. It will definitely not be Baptist, okay? So if you're coming thinking that you're going to come to a Baptist church for a Baptist service, you're going to be disappointed. You're coming to a Baptist church, but it, it may be music from all kinds of places and all kinds of denominations. Orthodox, it will be consistent with our theology, but definitely not done in the Stamps-Baxter methodology, all right? I want you to come, though, and be a part of worshiping the Lord with us. It will be a beautiful and wonderful time, and our friend Shumi has been a part of planning and organizing that. We're very proud of him and excited about what that night looks like. The next day, August the 20th, we're going to have what we call a crash course in Sunday school. Our friend uh, Ron Webster will be with us to introduce our church to the Deuteronomy 6 curriculum, abbreviated down to D6. We're going to group you by tables to sit with those that you teach with, and he's going to walk us through the whole smash from 9 to 1, and we're going to feed you lunch too. How about that? It will be a wonderful time to engage in discipleship at a whole new level. He's going to give you a whole year perspective on how this connects. And you're going to love this D6 curriculum, especially if you have children at home. The idea behind it is what Deuteronomy 6 says. It's the primary job of the family to disciple the children who are in that home. It is a wonderful and beautiful thing that Deuteronomy 6 has done for us. If you have a child in your home and that child is on the same curriculum that you are on, which is hopefully what will happen, then you'll get a booklet sent to you and that booklet will be filled with devotionals that are age appropriate for your children to help you lead them through conversations based on what you heard in Sunday school on Sunday morning. It's a follow-up all week long. One of the most challenging things of finding a time for a family devotional is how do you build it? Where do you find those resources? How do you connect with them? We're going to put one in your hand. I'm excited about it. I'd love to see you here that day. It's at 9 o'clock that morning. We'll run till 1 o'clock, and then we'll send you home after lunch. You don't have to come, and we can't make you, but I sure would like to see you there if you're in Sunday school leadership. If you're not, you're still welcome. We want you to hear what we have in in our hearts for our family ministry, for our children, and for those who come to worship with us here. Hey, let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed for tonight. Gracious Jesus, thank you for what we've heard tonight. The good news that you have already won and Satan has already lost. We don't necessarily understand all the timelines, Lord. We don't necessarily understand what this will look like and how it will all play out. But we know this, you do. 
And so with absolute confidence, we say, Jesus, we are yours. And we're going to trust you even if we don't understand. Would you guide us now as we go from here? Use our lives this week for your glory. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for putting us together as a family. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you soon.